all of that leads to objectification. And I think that's where those, those beliefs take root, right? That it's okay because if women are objects, they don't have the same rights or they don't have the same feelings. Maybe. Feelings, right. Um, yeah. And so you can objectify. I think you think in the same way that we don't put the same sort of weight on hurting animals as we do on hurting human beings, for example. So there's this hierarchy in our heads. And I think we're very aware that gender plays a huge role in terms of your vulnerability. Hi, everybody. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Spilling the Tea. This is episode 13, and I'm so excited to have my next guest on the show, Executive Director Linda McLean of the Brenda Strafford Society. November is Family Violence Prevention Awareness Month in Alberta, and I wanted to chat with Linda about bringing awareness to what life for some families dealing with violence looks like, especially throughout the pandemic and different resources available through the Brenda Stratford Society that offers support and guidance during times of crisis. Welcome, Linda. Thanks so much for having me, Kathleen. Thank you. So why don't you give everybody a quick introduction of who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Linda McLean. I'm currently the Executive Director for the Brenda Stratford Society. I have been working in the nonprofit world for almost 25 years now with lots of background in vulnerable populations, particularly families at risk, and women and children. Wow, amazing. That's a long time. <laughs> and so with the Brenda Stratford Society, your role is the executive director. And so what does your role bring to the organization? So I'm really responsible for the overall leadership of the organization. And that includes everything from managing our finances to worrying about our operations to building team, working with community, creating partnerships and working with allied agencies across sectors. It also has a lot to do with community and getting our message out, being sure that we are creating an accessible and barrier-free service for those in need, mm -hmm. but also building you know, understanding and knowledge in community members who aren't impacted by violence, but who play a big role in how our society views that, how it responds to it, and ultimately how we support those who are affected. I do lots of work as well around keeping the organization sustainable. And so that has to do with resource development, the time, talent, and treasure that we need mm -hmm. to stay operational. Lots of nonprofits, we receive some funding from systemic funders like our provincial government, mm -hmm. but the bulk of what we run on, we have to raise. So we're, we're always out there looking for support and those dollars go towards our continued operations of our programs. Wow. And when you say allied agencies, what does that mean? Agencies who are doing work in a related area. So okay. none of us can do everything and mm -hmm. be everyone. And so we have a range of different organizations in the nonprofit world who are each sort of occupying a niche and provide specific kinds of supports and services. So where we leave off, for example we would rely upon another organization to step in to fill some of those gaps. For example, many of the families that we work with are living below the poverty line, and mm -hmm. so security is a big issue. So when we are working with them and getting them stabilized in our progressive housing, for example, or in shelter, we're going to maybe make a referral to the Calgary Food Bank, help them get connected to those resources and supports that they can then transition with into community when they are living independently. Great. Okay. That makes total sense. And so let's dive into a little bit more about the Brenda Stratford Society itself. How did this organization like come to fruition? Mm -hmm. 
So we are coming up to our 25th anniversary next year in operation. And it was originally the vision of a philanthropist and businessman in Calgary, Dr. Barry Strafford. Dr. Strafford had a background in healthcare and his business operations are focused around seniors, housing and long-term care. But he also had a real passion for a number of different social issues. Some of them healthcare in the developing world, particularly related to eye health, where there's real lack of services. So they operate primary care through his philanthropic investments in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. But closer to home, he had an interest in supporting women and children, vulnerable women and children, particularly those who found themselves having their lives upended because of the impact of family violence. And what he saw was that our women's emergency shelters do wonderful work. Mm -hmm. Services are time limited. If you come in crisis to a women's emergency shelter, you have between three weeks and a month to stay there before you need to be able to transition out. That's not a very long time. And when you come having had your world turned upside down, perhaps not having worked outside the home before, maybe not having the skills or the education necessary to support yourself. Your kids are, you know, in crisis and devastated by what's just happened. 21 or 30 days is not a long time to turn that around and rebuild a life. And what happens often is that out of necessity, families will return to the abuser because they don't have the means or the options to move forward with independence and community. And they're often scared too about living in a, you know, sort of an independent living situation, renting an apartment or a house, because we know that the risk of serious injury or homicide escalates dramatically when a woman leaves her abuser. That's a very high risk time period. Mm -hmm. He saw was a need for a longer term option, a place where women and women with children could live in safety and security with supports for an extended period and have the ability to put in place all of those sort of puzzle pieces that one needs to feel that they can live well independently and have quality of life. So at the society, we offer second stage shelter which means that a woman and her children who are coming out of an emergency shelter can transition without gap right into our facility. And they're, okay. they're contained apartments. So you have, you know, real quality of life there, privacy and independence, but built-in supports. And you can stay in second stage shelter for up to six months. Wow. At that point, depending on the family's needs, we offer the opportunity to move on into our progressive housing where that family can stay with us for up to two years. So all together, we have, you know, a two and a half year window, which gives that time. I mean, you can, you can complete some schooling in that time. Mm-hmm. You drive in that time. Mm-hmm. You, it's reestablished in school. You can go through an extended period of counseling. You can learn all of the life skills you need, you know, setting up bank accounts, establishing credit, everything that you need because, you know, quite often women arrive into emergency shelters with none of these things in place. Wow. Really about setting people up for success and protecting and preventing around that really unnecessary choice of having to return to an unsafe situation because you can't, you don't have the things you need to be able to live on your own. Right, right. Oh my gosh, what an extraordinary organization. For people that don't know, now you know. 
And I mean, this is such a pillar of the community to empower women or, I mean, is it only women or is it men? Is it people of the LGBTQ community? Like, does it cater to everybody? So we, we certainly are striving to be as inclusive as possible. Historically, it has been women and women with children. Mm-hmm. Society has, has grown and evolved and learned a lot more sort of expansive understanding about identities. We definitely are open to those who identify as women and those who identify with women and have children in their care. So, yeah, but we do not have services in terms of our residential programming for men. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Like it just sounds like such a, like a mandatory organization to have in the community for providing places of shelter and also places of support, not only like to get somebody away from their abuser, but then also to empower them to start a new life. Yes. That's, I mean, that's remarkable. And one of the reasons that I wanted to connect in this month being November is that it is Family Violence Prevention Month in Alberta. And so what does that mean for the Brenda Stratford Center and your team? It's significant. You know, this is a time when we can sort of have the camera focused on us, the metaphoric camera around issues. We have one of the highest rates of domestic violence in our country in Alberta. Really? Yes, we do. You know, it has really significant impact and people don't necessarily recognize, I think, what the societal impact of that is Mm -hmm. in terms of the costs to, you know, human potential and human life. Mm -hmm. We just had two tragic deaths of women over the weekend in Central Florida, both the result of domestic violence situations, one of those women leaving behind four children. Mm-hmm. So it's unfortunately a regular occurrence and you know, a really high rate of women and children experience this on an annual basis. So this is a time for us really to be able to talk more in depth about what this means. You know, it's not always the cliche that people have in their head or the stereotype. It doesn't have to involve bloodied noses and broken bones. And violence can be much more insidious than that. It can be emotional, it can be sexual, it can be financial, and often a combination of those things. You know, there's often various forms of control that are at play, but in the end, it's really thwarting the potential of thousands of women and children every year because of the just the really detrimental impacts it has on a person's well-being, their mental health, their physical health, mm-hmm. ability to participate in society, the isolation that comes mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. And there's huge costs to our systems because of this, mm-hmm. huge costs to our law enforcement systems, huge costs to our justice system, to our healthcare system. And ultimately, I think the, you know, maybe the saddest part is that it tends to be a bit of a repeat pattern is that children who grow up witnessing abuse are at higher risk, much higher risk of becoming abusers themselves or entering into cyclical abusive relationships in adulthood. So the costs kind of keep spiraling through generations and that hurts us all. It hurts Mm -hmm. us all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, how could it not? And so why November? Is it just like randomly selected of these months that associate with these charities or these not-for-profit causes or whichever? Or is it, does it have actual special meaning that I'm just not aware of? No, there isn't a specific date or any hallmark that comes up in November. It is leading up to a particularly important day in Canada's history, 
that marks the remembrance of the death of the women at the Ecole Polytechnique on December 6th in Quebec, the shooting deaths of the women that was okay. the result of you know, gendered violence. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a bit of a lead up to that significant National Day of Remembrance okay. and help build the foundation for really appreciating and maybe getting to know more about those issues. Right, absolutely. And you sort of touched on this before, talking about the actual like definition of violence. When I think of violence, I think of physical abuse. But violence, like you said, it can be financial, it can be emotional, mental, sexual. Is I'm trying to kind of get to my question with talking through it. Yeah, no, that's good, just because yeah. there is a, almost like you know, there's a little bit of a stigma just saying that violence is physical, like like you said, mm-hmm. bloody noses and and black eyes and sort of things like that. Do you see a lot of outside of physical violence in the society or in the actual center itself that people come and they feel like they have had to gone through like emotional abuse and or they're you're reeling from mental abuse? Like, what does that look like? Oh, very much, very much. I mean, I'm thinking just there's a lot of stories popping into my head. I'm thinking about a woman and her children who are currently living with us. At the age of 14, she was married into an arranged marriage to an older man. She gave birth to a baby at the age of 14. That baby didn't live long after birth. She was basically kept locked in her home had no opportunity for schooling, had absolutely no access to finances or any kind of control of that nature. She was a child, basically, at the time. That relationship ended with his death, actually, from natural causes. And she was then taken to Canada and and married off into another arranged marriage situation where she was kept again a prisoner in her home, didn't speak English, didn't have any contact with community whatsoever, had no education beyond the equivalent of about a grade seven or eight level, had never driven a car, had no idea about having a bank account, anything like that, was also being subjected to physical abuse when she would not comply with directions or requests from her husband. He would lock her in a room and deprive her of food. Pregnant again and had a baby girl. And as luck would have it, it was just purely fortuitous that on a certain day, he, the husband, had forgotten to lock the door to the home where she, he he would lock it in such a way that she couldn't exit it, had forgotten to do that. And just by chance, a neighbor came to the door and that was how she escaped. I mean, she'd been subjected to every form of belittlement, you know, being demeaned, being starved being physically harmed, being isolated, being, you know, psychologically tortured through, you know, that lack of access to human contact and the inability to have any kind of support or, or even friendship in her life. And so, you know, so she's starting her life over again, and she's working from the standpoint of someone whose opportunity for development ended at 14, you know, so that's a lot of years to make up for. She's now in her her mid-20s, doing really well, I should say, really super bright woman, is enrolled now in some education programs that are helping her build the skills that she needs to be able to move forward. And her dream is to become a registered nurse. So, and I know she'll do it. (laughs) I know she'll do it. Oh, I'm getting a little emotional. Sorry, I'm just going (laughs) to turn my head for a second. It's good that you're not doing a live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, I have a hard time listening to that because 
I don't come from a background of violence. Mm. You know, really, like, it, I, I mean, I mean, I'm sure there, there, you know, there's a little bit of violence. I don't want to use the word violence. Trauma, I guess, that we experience mm. as women or... But that is a whole other level. I mean, just listen. Yes. To you just think, wow. Yeah. You know, to go through, to be on both ends of that, you know, from your perspective, to take that person in and work with them and see what their life is and turn it around is, I don't even think I have a word for it, remarkable. Mm-hmm. And for that woman to like, to understand that those resources are available and to also choose to take them and not think that she's less than for not taking them. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how you don't cry every day. (laughs) I would not do well in these scenarios. You know, listening to these and things and lots of the conversations I've been having on this podcast have been about women empowerment and body positivity and all these sorts of things. But these are very scary conversations Mm -hmm. for me to have and to listen to. But I think that's why we need to start having them. Definitely. And so, and that's the thing. It's so insidious because it's hidden, right? It is hidden. And I feel like it's not out in, it's not out in front of our eyes for good reason because abusers work really hard to keep it undercover. Oh my God. And so with the abusers, you know, they go through however many years, decades or months or whatever, abusing these women or people in their lives and causing so much trauma and, you know, a whole list of other things what happens to them on the other side like are they I would hope that they're locked up (laughs) are they imprisoned are they functioning in society are they moving on to like their next victim like are they walking around the streets like yeah all of those things it's very much the truth that in a lot of cases no criminal charges ever get brought It's also very much the case that this tends to be a repeat pattern of behavior, that those who are abusive tend to repeat that pattern throughout their life. And so they move from relationship to relationship and and wreak that kind of havoc in multiple lives and, and ripple effects through that. Certainly in extreme cases where there's been, you know, really significant violence that would fall under sort of criminal charges, you do sometimes have charges laid and guilty verdict rendered and, and jail time as a consequence. But I would say that more often you don't. More often, unfortunately, you don't. You may have involvement with the justice system through the form of restraining orders. Right. There may be different disputes that happen in our courts around protection of women who are leaving those situations. But yeah, often we don't. And I think we try, as hard as it may sound, to be empathetic we do need to step back and look empathetically at that as well, because this is not about men or women, for that matter, who are evil. Very often, those who are abusers have themselves been abused. Right. And it's, it's often a consequence of that, you know, deep developmental trauma that's happened and learned behaviors, especially if it's been going on since childhood, that mm-hmm. are hard to reverse and change. And the people who are abusers are are often very hurt people themselves and need a lot of help. Right. They don't, very often don't seek it, you know, because there is a lot of stigma, right? You'd have to first admit and acknowledge this. And that's not something most people are having an easy road on in terms of coming to that. Do any of them think that this is the right thing to do? Or like, would they possibly think that this is okay like they don't really think that they're doing anything wrong? Like to us, this is one of the most more traumatic 
mm-hmm. instances that I would, would have a conversation about, um, especially on this show. But those people who are the abusers, like they could be walking around thinking, I'm going to lock my wife in this room and not going to let her out. And that's okay. But those thoughts, that back and forth, sort of like, you know, the morals of good and evil, would that conversation internally happen in their own minds or no? Very much, very much. I mean, and I don't think it's about evil so much as it is about the fact that our society condones this. You know, we deeply entrenched beliefs and values and practices that hold women to be of lesser value. It wasn't that long ago that women were property in our culture and in our society. And, you know, that's still with us. A lot of, you know, media is to blame to some extent. There's a lot of portrayals that would lead, you know, young men who are growing up to believe that, you know, causing harm or, or dominating women is okay. It's okay. We kind of glamorize some of this. You think about the kinds of imagery that you see sometimes in in different media forums that really glamorize the idea of women being victimized. Video games dedicated to this stuff, right? And so it's and women are, you know, just highly sexualized from childhood on. And so all of that leads to objectification. And I think that's where those those beliefs take root, right? That it's okay because if women are objects they don't have the same rights or they don't have the same feelings. Maybe. Feelings, right. Um, yeah, and so you can objectify. I think you think in the same way that we don't put the same sort of weight on hurting animals as we do on hurting human beings, for example. So there's this hierarchy in our heads. And I think we're very aware that gender plays a huge role in terms of your vulnerability. Right, right. Oh, my God. I mean, the way that like you start off hearing about, okay, if it's violence or family violence and you think, okay, it's physical abuse, but then you go into it, you know, there's a whole spectrum of abuse. And then you kind of, you know, you keep, we keep having, unpacking a little bit more. And I'm sure you probably talk all day about this sort of stuff. I would listen, <laughs> but you know, you keep unpacking it and unpacking it. And then you start to see like, you know, this is intrinsic in our culture and this is intrinsic yes. in the things that we read, see and engage with. And then you know, it's also like a cyclical action of abuse within the abuser, as well as maybe in like the abusee's family seeing that and, and thinking yes. that's okay. And I deserve this. I'm not worthy of, you know, love or whatever. You know, there's so many avenues that this word violence is mm-hmm. now intertwined with. And it's not just, okay, a slap on the face or a black eye or a bloody nose or things like that. There is so much to talk about and to unpack. And I mean... Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to keep these episodes 30 minutes or less, but <laughs> I mean, I feel like my entire like brain is like blown up right now, <laughs> because, you know, and I encourage anybody that's listening to this episode to really educate yourselves on what violence means and how you can support and, you know, and just being aware that it is happening. Like I said, like my, I don't come from a, any sort of violence in my family's background or even the people that I'm surrounding myself with. And so for me to hear it, it's very difficult. And, you know, that means that I'm not listening as much or I'm not engaging in these conversations and being educated myself as much because it sounds like when you said that Alberta was like one of the higher provinces witnessing all this and experiencing all this violence. I was like, what? And like, I should be like, not saying what? I should be like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, (laughs) 
I feel like I steer away from that kind of stuff. So I mean, yeah, there's a lot to unpack, but I'm going to keep moving on to a couple different questions because I know that when COVID was really ramping up in the height of COVID and a lot of Facebook messages kept popping up about violence saying, comment this word or whatever, or they were sort of like this language that kind of came up on social media to say, if you're trapped in your house and you're not working from home or your husband or your abuser is now working from home and you're getting abused more, you know, there was almost this hidden dialogue that I kind of, that came up quite a bit. So how did COVID and how is COVID, I guess, because it's not going away, impacting families experiencing violence? Has it gone up? Or is it sort of stayed stagnant? Like sort of walk me through that, what's been going on. Yeah, well, a number of really terrifying things happened. First of all, during that first wave when things were really locked down, when schools were closed, when people weren't at work, what we saw, and it's not good news, is Mm -hmm. video silence at the women's emergency crisis lines and also of note is that they saw just a significant like 90% drop off in the calls to our child and family services lines that, that take calls about child abuse or neglect. Wow. So, and that's, that's not because it wasn't happening. That's because all of a sudden, all of those protective factors and maybe those other eyes that would see and hear this and take steps to intervene were no longer in the picture kids weren't going to school. So teachers and extracurricular coaches and that kind of stuff weren't seeing kids. Women to leave their homes and be at work. So, you know, trying to make a call to a crisis line when you're in the home with your abuser is next to impossible. And how would you go about exiting? You can't even rely upon maybe any informal supports that you've been accessing previously because you can't step out for coffee with your friend. You can't pretend you're going to the grocery store and then maybe go and see a counselor or go and see a nurse or go to the hospital. You can't do any of those things. And so it was really a terrifying time. And what we have seen in the aftermath, and this is, you know, reports from Calgary Police Service and from other crisis shelters is there's been a big jump in calls, an almost 20% increase in the calls that started to come in after we lifted the restrictions. Oh my God. It's the perfect storm, right? For those of us who aren't living with this, being locked down or, you know, limited in our access to the outside world might be an inconvenience, but being trapped in that situation when you have this dynamic going on is, is sheer terror. It's, there's no respite, no respite. Yeah. Sheer terror. I just want to repeat, mm-hmm. that's what you said, sheer terror. You know, exactly. You're right. Like, you know, I'm sitting over here complaining, you know, that I can't go to the mall and I can't do all this yeah. you know, trivial things. I mean, nothing, but I'm not stuck in a house with an abuser okay. and along with my children, you know, it's like one mm-hmm. thing to be an individual that's dealing with it. But then if you're exposing mm-hmm. your children to that, I can only imagine. And there's like one, I've heard it before, but it's like a replay of a woman calling like pretending to call Domino's or like a pizza 73 or whatever. And then, you know, it's like somebody answers the phone saying like, this is some sort of helpline. Like this is not Domino's, whatever. And then she goes through like a dialogue to try and unpack that. She's like, I'm 
you know, I'm getting abused or I'm in a situation of full of violence. Has that happened? Would that be happening as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and there's been a number of efforts on, you know, throughout the years, not not just during COVID, but in other scenarios to try and create this kind of no wrong door situation where... Right you might have to seize an opportunity and it might be in shoppers drug mart. It might not be an ability to call a crisis line. You might have to tell a clerk he's in the car right now. And if I leave this store and get in the car, I think he's going to kill me. Right? You, you need to be able to say, you know, disclose something and have a whole range of different people know how to respond properly to do that. Mm-hmm. And I, what, you know, that's what this month is about, right? Is helping to educate and equip people so that if someone discloses to you, you know how to respond and you know what to do. And that doesn't mean you're going to solve everything or you're going to fix the situation, but that you can take even basic steps to say, I know where to call this crisis, or I know how to direct this woman, or I know even how to react in this, right? I'm not going to freeze up and go, I can't help you. Like, yeah. Well, that would, yeah, like that would be me. I'd be like, I have no idea. So in terms of like support, because my next question is to say like, how can listeners and like our community members get involved? When I wrote that question, I was like, okay, like, subscribe, you know, follow, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. Can you take me through like a situation almost if like I'm in let's just say what you just said, shoppers, and somebody comes up to me and I'm looking for probably mascara, some sort of makeup, again, dumb stuff. (laughs) And someone says, my husband's in the car, he's going to kill me. Like, I really need help. Like, what is a patron's or somebody that's responding to that situation? What do they do? Yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think is to hear it, you know, to listen, to to not turn away, to validate and, and acknowledge that and to honor that if someone's disclosing this, it's probably true that, you know, the chance of that being some kind of prank is almost infinitesimally small. That's highly unlikely. So I think validating that and acknowledging that. And in terms of next steps, there's lots, right? If so, it depends really what that person is wanting at that point. If they're saying, please stay with me and help me call the police, then that's what you want to do, right? Goodness. You want to take their lead on that. You want to, you know, if you can approach the store security or approach the store manager or whomever, just so you can get some safety in terms of being involved in that situation, right? If that's in a public location, mm-hmm. you're in a private home, that's a whole different ballgame. And I wouldn't, I don't advise anyone to try and be the Lone Ranger or anything like this or to step in between. Definitely, if you're in a private home and you think there's a risk of imminent violence of any kind, you're going to want to get yourself out of there first. <laughs> And right. then make all that you need to 911 to report what you're aware of. Sort of on a, a broader scale and, and how you might be able to help if someone were disclosing in a non-crisis situation. Like maybe you have a friend who says, you don't know this, but for the last six months, my partner's been assaulting me. You know, and that's sometimes how disclosures happen. It's not in the middle of crisis or in the middle of an incident. It's when someone finally breaks and needs to disclose this. In that case, there's lots of options, and I'm not going to rattle off a whole bunch of phone numbers on this podcast, but what I would suggest is that, you know, even a simple Google search for women's emergency shelter or crisis line will bring up a number of different options, many of them 24 hours that can be called, Mm -hmm. and the experts on those crisis lines will take over and help that woman or the one who is trying to help that woman to learn a little bit more about what options look like and how to proceed. So that's definitely the way to go is to make contact with those who are the experts, right? right. Don't handle it yourself. I mean, if you can safely intervene in a crisis, by all means, that's great. 
but you know, nobody needs to be a hero in this. We, we do want to rely on the experts. And if that means police, it's police. And if that means the crisis line at the emergency shelter, that's the best option. Right. Right. Okay. Very good. I love hearing that, you know, because it, it's always something that you don't want to live in the world of what ifs, but definitely knowing that this violence and abuse is happening in our community as much as it is, that this is something that could happen. Obviously, we don't want it to be happening, but I love knowing like, okay, what's the plan? If X happens, what does Y look like? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay, now I have a couple questions and like this podcast is, is for digital content creators and marketing and you know things that are in between. And this is kind of something that would be in between uh, regular content, but I think it is highly valuable and we would lo- I want to share these messages loud and proud. So I'm going to kind of skip over some of these marketing questions. I just don't really feel like they're valuable, but I mean, they're valuable, but they're not our conversation is just sort of veering off of them. I don't want to, I don't want to shed light away from their, the topic that we're on right now. But one of the content pieces that that's on the website is, is it llama? Llama? Llama. Yeah. Llama. Okay. Llama. Like, like, the, like the animal. The okay. I was like, I didn't want to say it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> llama and me. And it's, it's talking about the family's experience with violence. And so I mean, you shared one story with me and I broke down into tears. And so those are very vulnerable conversations and stories to share from like an organizational, like content perspective. Like, are people willing to share these stories more and more? Are they willing to sort of say like, this is exactly what I've gone through and this is where I'm going? Because I would be nervous to share, I guess. And, but I do find that more and more people want to share. That's where I'm getting at. Yeah, and I think that really depends where they are in their journey, in their healing journey. Mm-hmm. Huge amount of stigma, right? There's so right. much, it's, you know, it's ironic, but there's so much stigma around being a victim. There really is. Right. We still live in a world where, you know, people who've been victimized get asked silly questions like, well, why didn't you just leave? You know, what, what did you do wrong? You must have been doing something. You know, we, we blame, we blame victims a lot in our culture and we, we don't celebrate people who are strong enough to admit that they've been victimized. We don't, we see it as weakness, right? So a lot of times, particularly for women and children who are, you know, newly accessing supports, there's huge sensitivity. They're not ready to go into that. And it's traumatizing too, to have to tell them. We live it. Moments. Right. A lot of people need to shut down for a period of time but what we see, and it's, you know, it's not universal, but what we see is it's often a really positive sign that women are starting to feel stronger and more empowered when they do want to share their story. Because sharing your story is part of taking back your power, right? It's part of taking back your identity and your power and being able to say, this happened to me, but it's not me. But it's not right? me, right. But it's not me. And so, yeah, we do have people who are willing to share we are very, very careful about that, though. We would high, it would be highly unlikely we'd ever share point for point a particular family's story because of risk of identification, the fact that they might be subject to further retaliation from their abuser. So that's not something that we really spend time on. The, the film that you're referencing that we just finished, yeah. Mama, it's a dramatized version of a child's experience of what it's like to have to leave your home because of family violence and what your world looks like in the aftermath of that. 
llama is in reference to a stuffed animal that this little girl in the film, this is one of the few things she gets out of her house with. It's just a really central piece of her story because she's holding on to this as her tenuous grasp on her former life, right? And it's, you know, it's not as simple as, oh, great, we're, we escaped and we're gone and everything's good now. No situation is all bad. No situation is all good. And particularly for children, as scary as it may be to live in a home where abuse is going on, it's even scarier to lose everything, right. to have all of your belongings disappear, to have to go to a strange place, to have to answer a lot of questions, to have to go to a new school, to have your, see your mom in distress and not know what's going to happen next. And the, the film is, is geared around that. We created the film for use in classrooms and with youth groups and for really for kids between the ages of about, say, nine and 15. Okay. And it's very much shot through the eyes of this child and what it would be like to have to go through this experience and how torn she is between being happy and, and feeling relieved that she's in a place of safety, but remembering all that she's lost and, and really on the fence about whether or not this is going to get better or not, right? Or maybe, you know, what about just going home? And we we asked the question to the viewers, the story ends on a cliffhanger. So it ends with this little girl saying, I wonder what happens now. Wow. And really about asking students and, and young people everywhere to write the ending to that story. What would the ending to the story look like? Right. Why? Wow. That's powerful. Like, it's just, I want to cry again. (laughs) I mean, like really, really powerful things that you guys are, that you're creating and that, and even powerful for the the person that the, or the family that that life is is based on to put that out there. I'm just going to use the word remarkable because I can't think of anything bigger than that. (laughs) Truly, truly is. And so I just wanted to backtrack a little bit because you'd said that, you know, people said, like if leaving abuse saying like, oh, well, what did you do? Or how come you just didn't leave? And like this, uh-huh. so these questions and this dialogue that we kind of, I think we use as responding to like, because we're uncomfortable. Why do we, or do we, I don't want to generalize, why do those reciprocal questions come up? Yeah, I think a lot of it is, you know, as human beings, we could do a lot better in the empathy department. (laughs) You know, I think that we struggle all the time, all of us do, to really put ourselves in someone else's shoes and to really empathize, to really be able to not say, I know exactly what you mean, but to say, I can absolutely appreciate what that would feel like, right? right? That's the hard part. I think we, things that are uncomfortable, I think generally human beings shy away from them, right? We want to kind of simplify them, sweep them under the rug, maybe try and rationalize them, if you will. And I think that's where it comes from. It's not driven by malice or, you know, someone who's trying to be unkind. It's just a gross oversimplification, you know? So, so he hit you, why don't you just leave? That just speaks to a complete ignorance around what it's like to be in that dynamic. Right. You know, what happens when you live that dynamic is you no longer believe that you have a choice. You don't even believe you have the capacity to do anything for yourself. You lose your sense of self-worth. You internalize a lot of that. You internalize those demeaning comments and those belittling comments. And it's really hard then to sort of shake yourself off and say, okay, I'm out the door, buddy. Not likely, right? And, And you're also in a constant state of toxic stress which we know 
really does make it difficult for your brain to function at, at full capacity. Absolutely. Under toxic stress, and we, we know this from research, only about 10% of your brain is really able to function at full capacity because you're so consumed by the stress, right? Wow. Yeah, you're right. You were totally right. And now what are some ways that we can reduce the stigma about abuse and yeah. violence? And how can we change those reciprocal questions and have more empathy instead of being like, you know, why don't you just leave? <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, you, you referenced, you know, the podcast has a focus on digital content. I think we have so many powerful mediums now by which to communicate mm-hmm. so more than we've ever had in history before. And we know that, you know, how younger people receive information is through this immediate sort of form through the Instagrams and through Twitter and through all of the, the sort of online content that they're, and they're being bombarded with messages all day long. I think that if we as a society, many before we get there, if small groups of people who believe in taking action can sort of take control of some of those mediums and use them to counter all of the messages that we know are perpetuating a culture where it's okay to hurt people. It's okay to bully people. It's okay Mm -hmm. to mean people. It's okay to see people as lesser than. We can counter that, right? And, you know, that's why doing like this kind of work is super important to us because it gets the message out in ways that's going to reach people in an immediate sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think we we do. We have a lot of work to do. I think ultimately, if we're going to change the story, it begins in childhood, right? We're not going to end family violence by working with the adults who've already lived shattered lives because of it. We can certainly improve quality of life for those who've come to adulthood and lived through this. But if we really want to change behavior, that starts with children, what children do and don't think is okay. You know, if you look at various social marketing campaigns over the years and the relative success of them are like our anti-tobacco campaigns, for example, the attitude of, of this generation towards cigarettes is markedly different mm-hmm. than it was 25, 30 years ago, and even markedly more so than 50 years ago when it right. was, right? And now most kids five and up will tell you that it's yucky, right? (laughs) We can change. We can change what people believe. We do it all the time through media, all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so we need to harness those forces and those mediums and use them to help because that's really the root of it. It's, it can only live because we're okay with it. It continues to be perpetuated because we're okay with it. Right, right. And I don't want to be okay with it. Yeah. And I imagine you don't either. Exactly. No. No. Oh my gosh. Well, I am going to wrap up with the questions and all that. So I will just ask you one last thing, which we kind of touched on. How can listeners get involved? Where can we follow you? Where can we engage with your content? Leave us off on that note. Yeah. We would love to see, you know, more followers. If you visit our website at Mm brandastrosociety.com, you can see all of our social on there and connect with us via that. We are on a number of different forums and would love to have more people engaged around that. I think in terms of sort of substantive and direct individual connection, we do work with lots of volunteers and there's lots of different opportunities. Again, you can check that out on our website. 
And we are, of course, always looking for people to help spread the word. So if you can be an ambassador of educating yourself about these issues, either through our content or through the content of any of our sister agencies, and take that out through your channels and your networks, that's the best help you can give us is get that message out, get the facts out, get the truth out, and let's pull back this curtain on us. Absolutely. Let's do it. Well, we have officially spilt the tea for episode 13 with Linda McLean, Executive Director of the Brenda Strafford Society. And we will talk to you guys next time in our next episode. Spilling the Tea Podcast is brought to you by Local Laundry. Made for creators, influencers, marketers, and entrepreneurs, each episode we spill the tea on new marketing tips and tricks while laundering insights from guests and hanging local laundry insider secrets out to dry. Wash up on your marketing, creating, and influencing know-how, and stay tuned for new episodes and weekly chitter-chatter. 